Kate Parker's best-selling Deadly series follows intrepid lady sleuth Olivia Redmond, society reporter for a London newspaper, as she navigates the perils of World War II Europe while unmasking murderers and spies. Welcome to the Joys of Binge Reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series, so you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler, and on Binge Reading this week we've got the latest book, Deadly Rescue in Kate Parker's World War II best-selling cosy mystery series. As usual, we've got great book offers, including a Halloween sales promo of dark fantasy, mystery and thriller books, including Unbridled Vengeance, number five in the Of Golden Blood series, 50% off as a Halloween special. We've also got another fabulous book suites promotion. 50 plus books and a new e-reader to be won in the Literary, Historical and Book Club Fiction Contest. Details for how to enter these are all on the website, the show notes for this episode at thejoysofbingereading.com. And just before we get to Kate, a reminder, if you're enjoying the show, why don't you leave us a review on your favourite podcast site, spread the word so others can join in the fun. But now here's Kate. Hello there, Kate, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. Look, Kate, you're a North Carolina, USA-based best-selling author, but most of your books, well, I think all of your books, as far as I know, are set in the UK. So where did this love for the UK spring from? My mother had the entire collection of Agatha Christie murder mysteries. I grew up on that. And what I wanted to do more than anything else and still do would be to go to Great Britain in the 1930s to experience (laughs) that world that she wrote about. And since I cannot build a time machine in my backyard, I haven't figured it out yet. I'd like to travel to Britain, but I also like to write about it. That's fantastic. Well, look, you've certainly done that. You've got 16 books to your credit in three different series. The one we're talking about today, the 17th, is part of your Deadly series, and it's called Deadly Rescue. It's book nine in the series, and that one's set in wartime Britain, but quite a lot of the rest are set in 19th century Britain, aren't they? Yes, the first two series are set in the late Victorian era and the Edwardian era. So it's just the deadly series that's set just before the war and then now wartime Britain. You've had particular breakthrough success with the deadly series, haven't you? Yes, it has been the the biggest boost for me so far. Because of the popularity of wartime stories. Have you got any idea in what was going on in Germany before World War II? Your own mind, why the Second World War has become so popular with readers? Not really. Now, in my own books, 
it started out because of a connection between what I was living in at that point and what was going on in Germany before World War II. I went to a church where we had all sorts of refugees coming in from the Congo, and they were settling in our little town on the coast of North Carolina because our minister was from the Congo, and he was able to speak their languages. So they were all coming to, at least until they learned English, were all coming to our little town and settling there first when they came to the U.S. And so here they are different language, different culture, different weather, different everything. And it made me think, I mean, I have no idea how it's going to work out for these people. But I look back at World War II and the Jews being run out of Germany and Austria and what have you, settling in Britain, settling in some other places. And they went through the same thing, different culture, different language. So I used them as an example in my books of what these people that I knew today in the U.S. were going through. That's very interesting, yeah. As we've said, the war has started, but we're in the the so-called phony war stage of it, so no real fighting has begun yet. So, But the earlier books were in the late 30s and leading into this period, billed as spy thrillers, as well as being classical cozies. And you've got intrepid lady sleuths with spunk and smarts. And I think that that's true of all of your series. They all sound as if you've got wonderful female heroines. Yes. You particularly like these kind of slightly stroppy women who won't sit down and take orders. Absolutely. (laughs) I wish I had that much guts, you know. (laughs) (laughs) I was just going to ask you whether that reflects you yourself, but perhaps not quite so much. Uh, It's what I wish I were. (laughs) Your alter ego, great. Look, as I've mentioned, this is set in the phony war, and I wondered, because of your love for Britain, whether the events of the last 10 days have particularly drawn you in and touched you, the death of Queen Elizabeth II. As we're talking, she is lying in state in Buckingham Palace overnight, and we're not going to have the funeral for another few days. In New Zealand, our TV screens have been flooded with this because, of course, we still revert to the status of a former colony when something like this happens. Is it the same in the US? And how are you feeling about it all? Oh, yes. It's all over the news here, too. And our local station on the national news, they keep showing shots of what the new king is doing, where the queen is, and all of that. And we have Sky News. In fact, I came in here to talk to you from watching Sky News to see what was going on there this evening, to see Charles and Camilla in Northern Ireland, and to see Queen Elizabeth being brought home to Buckingham Palace. Have you made quite a few trips to Britain to do your research for these stories? Oh, yes. Every every chance I get, I can find a good reason to go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's lovely. So in Deadly Rescue, Olivia is a newspaper reporter who gets called into wartime service. She's got the advantage of having some links with the aristocracy. She's a minor aristocratic family herself. I wondered where you got the idea for this character, the shaping of the character. 
We had a cartoon character when I was a child in the comics called Brenda Starr, Star Reporter. And this is back, well, in the 50s then. So she was red haired, like Olivia is. And she was a newspaper reporter and she always got the scoop over the guys and all this good stuff. She influenced my building of Olivia quite a bit. Yes, and in the first book of the series, which is set in 1937, her husband, who was a foreign office diplomat, is shot dead in Germany, and it's declared a suicide. She refuses to accept that and goes straight out to research and find out what really happened. That's how you launch the series, don't you? Yes. Do you try and keep the historical accuracy as real and true as you can? Oh, yes, indeed. Deadly Rescue, the new book. It, my first inkling that that book was going to be written was when I realized that Admiral Canaris, who was the head of German military intelligence on Thursday, April 4th, informed the governments of Denmark and Norway that they were invading them the next Tuesday, uh, April the 9th. He had seen what had happened in Poland, did not like the civilians getting killed. So he said, okay, let's try to avoid this here. And he told them so that they had a chance to just surrender and not the problems that Poland had. And um, Denmark that, indeed did that. That's fascinating because I did notice at the beginning of that book, you refer to that. And I thought, I didn't bother to Google it, but I did think, did this really happen? It sounds so unlikely that a top German would do that. So it's fascinating to see it highlighted there. Yes, he wasn't totally enamored with Hitler. And in fact, near the end of the war, Hitler had him hung, thrown in prison and hung. Have you also traveled to Germany for part of your research? I was there a couple of years ago because that's where I got the information that I used for deadly travel on the kinder transport. Yeah, I had the father in a concentration camp. And so I went to a concentration camp and bought the books and toured the place and all to find out what this guy was up against and trying to hold out until his kids got out of Germany safely. Yes, actually, tell us a little bit about that particular book, Deadly Travel, because what happened with Olivia, her efforts in the first book drew her to the attention of the government spymaster in Britain. And because she also is fluent in German, she becomes a kind of undercover operator for the government whenever they want somebody who isn't exactly on the payroll, but is useful to do some extra investigation for them, isn't she? And so she actually does get involved with the kinder transport. Talk a bit about that book, Deadly Travel. Okay, when Deadly Travel, uh, the Quaker church religion, were involved in going over and chaperoning the trainloads of kids coming into Britain with the kinder transport from Germany, from Austria, what have you. And this woman who was supposed to go, a young woman who was supposed to go on the next trip was murdered in London. And they wanted to know, did it have anything to do with the kinder transport? 
because they suspected that somebody was passing messages to the Germans using the kinder transport to do this. And they thought perhaps this was the reason she was murdered and this wasn't just a, a random attack on the street. So they put Olivia in her place to go over to Germany and bring the kids back with the kinder transport. Well, once she gets to Germany, they tell her, oh, we have another job for you. We have these two little boys that we have got to get out of Germany. We want you to bring them back with the kinder transport too, while you're trying to find out if there's a spy on the kinder transport. <laughs> so she had a couple of assignments there all at once and incidentally travel. That sounds fascinating. I haven't had a chance to read that one. I was also, though, fascinated by your earlier series, the Victorian Bookshop series, because your heroine in that character is just as fascinating as Olivia. She's called Georgia Fenchurch. She's a, quotes, demure Victorian spinster, but she's also part of a secret investigative group called the Archivist Society. So she's a quiet antiquarian bookseller and a solver of murder mysteries so uh, tell us how that character came about she's such a great thumbnail sketch for starters well I knew I wanted her to own a bookshop run that bookshop she inherited it from her parents uh, so I gave her some backstory and all and then I start writing and I came up with the character of the Duke of Blackford almost immediately, who was trying to stop her from one of the investigations that the Archivist Society is carrying out. That began the whole thing. It and evolved from there. And at the start, the archivists are just doing the normal kind of research that you'd expect people who are interested in history to do. Is that right? Well, actually, no. They tend to do their investigating by posing as mailmen and gas line inspectors and working as maids in people's houses and all sorts of stuff trying to solve these mysteries. They solve the cases that Scotland Yard can't. So. Oh, I see. Okay, that sounds great. In all of your books, you promise clean reads, nothing too scary, no onstage violence, swearing, or sex. Yes, indeed. I don't like to read them, so I figure anybody who doesn't like to read them is going to like when I'm writing because that's the way I feel about it. So. Yeah, but you've got plenty of people who do like that. My ideal reader is somebody who likes the same kind of stuff I do. You have something in common. You're a highly productive writer. You first published, I think, in 2013. You've now got 17 books published in less than 10 years. Tell us about your writing process and how do you organize your day? Uh, total chaos would probably be the best description. <laughs> I'm a complete pantser. I sit down and I start writing at the beginning of the book and I just keep going till I hit the end of it for the first draft. And by the time I get to the end of it, I know I want to go back and change this character and have this happen here and that happen there. And that's how I find out what happens in the book. <laughs> how many drafts do you end up doing under, with that process? Quite a few. Uh -huh. 
that first draft is the one that takes me forever because it's like, oh, yeah, I guess I'm going to do this and that and something else. And it's all over the map. Once I have the first draft down, then I can go back and I can go through methodically and add what needs to be added and take out what needs to be taken out. In terms of your research, do you do a, quite a lot of research before you start writing? I do some before I start writing, but a lot of it is done once I've gotten into the book. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I need to think more about what are they wearing? I need to think more about what's going on around them yeah, and all that good stuff. Yeah. There is a wonderful source, the British Newspaper Archive, which is online. It used to be I'd have to go over to the British Library every time I wanted to go through newspapers but now I can do it online Yay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's great um your your website mentions that you do live in a part of North Carolina that is described as the research triangle and I had never heard that phrase before it seemed particularly appropriate for a historical fiction author but what exactly is the research triangle well, it's Raleigh, Durham, and Chapel Hill, these three towns, and they each have a big university in them, Duke, UNC, NC State. And so it's the research triangle. There's a lot of computer type of research and stuff going on. I see. Yeah. So it's a big place for academia. Yes. Turning away from the specific books and talking a little bit about your wider career, what kind of work-life experience did you bring to your writing and how has it influenced your work? It hasn't influenced it at all. <laughs> My degree is in microbiology. I had one English course in college. That's oh, it. Gosh, yeah. I worked as a hospital microbiologist for several years. And then I went to work for the telephone company and worked there until I retired. And at that point, it was like, okay, I want to write. <laughs> so I did. Now, tell me, was there some catalyst that made you think that you'd had a good working life? Was there anything that was like a turnkey to get you started in the writing? Not really. I'd always fooled around with it. I never did anything seriously with it. But I had always been fooling around with writing. And I was always writing in my head. Great. Is there anything that you would particularly describe as the secret of your success? I mean, you've had a remarkable run in terms of the number of books you've published and the success that you've had with them. What's the secret? I enjoy what I do. Uh -huh. And it makes me want to keep going and I want to entertain people. So this is my way of doing it. I want to write stuff that people enjoy. And that I enjoy. And do you have any particular advice for beginner writers? Read a lot, write a lot, enjoy what you're doing. Yeah, which is very much your recipe, isn't it? Yes, indeed. This is the joys of binge reading, and we do very much focus on popular fiction. We always like to ask our authors what they have read or are reading and what they'd like to recommend to others. So, Tell us about your reading taste and what you are excited about now. Well, one of my favorite, absolutely favorite writers is an English writer named Robert Bernard. 
I'm sure that everybody in New Zealand has heard of him. He was the head of the British Crime Writing Society and all that kind of thing. Wrote some brilliant murder mysteries. Absolutely brilliant. With a nice twist in the last paragraph. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. He's, he's wonderful. Also, a pair of writers from New York City back when wrote together under the name of Emma Lathan. And they made up a character who was in charge of the third biggest bank in the world or something like that in New York City. Clients of the bank would come in and they'd have some kind of a problem. And of course, it led to murder. And he'd end up in the investigation. And he was the one who always seemed to figure out what had happened. It is now a historical series. When they wrote it, it was contemporary. But it's post-World War II New York City in the 60s and 70s. And how do you spell their names? I haven't heard of them, I must admit. Okay. Emma, E-M-M-A, Lathan, L-A-T-H-A-N. And it was a man and a woman, was it, appearing? Okay. Yes, it was It was two women. Right. Uh, Mary Ellen somebody, and I can't remember who the other one was. But yes. I wrote under the name Emma Lathan. Okay, so the name was a total pen name. It didn't relate to either of their real names. No, no, okay. not really. Yeah, yeah. Looking back down the tunnel of time, if there was one thing about your writing career that you'd like to change, what would it be? I should have gotten serious about it earlier. I enjoyed fooling around with it, but I didn't get serious about it until after I retired in 2005. So I wish I'd have gotten serious about it earlier. And when you did get serious about it, did you manage to find a publisher reasonably quickly? No, I wrote 18 complete manuscripts before I finally found an agent who then found a publisher. Really? And did any of those manuscripts in the end get published? Number 18 or 19, I think, did. Before that, no. They were junk. I mean, <laughs> I got better each time, but they weren't quite good enough. That's really interesting. So did you ever read any craft books along the way, or did you just start writing and get better by instinct as you went along? I read a lot of craft books. Couldn't figure out what the heck they were talking about most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> but I read them, and it must have penetrated somewhere because... All of a sudden, it started to coalesce. Yeah, yeah. About, about the 18th or 19th time I went through this process. That's fascinating. And those 18 manuscripts, what time and location were they? Were they mysteries as well? For the most part, they were mysteries. There were some romances in there because I belonged to a romance chapter and my critique partners were romance writers, so I tried writing romance. I have been told that I could write love scenes on an iceberg because <laughs> I wasn't very good at it. I do much better with murders. <laughs> right. Apparently, I enjoyed that better. <laughs> <laughs> romance writers, though, have a fantastic marketing approach, don't they? They're absolutely the lead genre in terms of reaching out to their audience. Yes, they are. They're very warm people. What's next for Kate, the author? What have you got on your desk for the next 12 months? 
I have begun the 10th book in the Deadly series, Deadly Manor, uh, that takes place uh, a couple of months after Dunkirk. Uh -huh. So we've gotten into that point. And Adam, who is Olivia's husband, was in France uh, during the fall of France, the fall of Belgium, the uh, fall of Holland. He works in the spy part of the British Army. And so he had to get out. He didn't get out of Dunkirk. He got out in Cherbourg. But he was shot up before he did. He's now recuperating. And they go out into the countryside. They leave London right after the Blitz starts. So you've got the Blitz going on in London. They're out in the countryside. He's trying to heal up. And, of course, we have murders. <laughs> I'm calling it Deadly Manor. Oh, fantastic. M-A-N-O-R. Very much harking back to the classical mystery era, really, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Do you enjoy interacting with your readers, and how do you go about that? Do you interact online or on person or by email? How do you like to talk to your readers, so to speak? Well, the best way to reach me is on my website, www.com kateparkerbooks.com and there's a place there to contact me and people do and I get it and I email them back. I can vouch that you are a very quick responder because that's actually how I made contact with you and I was amazed at how quickly you bounced back and was all on so that's fantastic Kate. Yeah I found that it works well. That's wonderful. Look thank you so much for your time. We've had a lovely chat, and I'm sure these books still have a wonderful future ahead of them. Well, thank you very much, and I hope people enjoy them. I hope your listeners enjoy them. There's quite a lot of them in our local library, so your the word has spread. <laughs> oh, wow. Great. Thank you. <laughs> Bye for now. Bye-bye. If you enjoyed hearing about Kate Parker's World War II mysteries, you may well enjoy Mark Ellis's World War II London stories. Now, Mark was one of the early people that we had on the podcast, but his books are still fabulous. World War II London is a place where crime flourishes alongside the heroism of firefighters and fighter pilots. Charismatic detective Frank Merlin deals with rapists and racketeers amidst the carnage of falling bombs. That's on The Joys of Binge Reading, another one of our back episodes for people who enjoyed Kate's stories. Next week on Binge Reading... Hallie Bridgman and inspirational romantic suspense. Phil Osborne of the Special Forces A-Team returns home from the military, missing a leg and feeling like half a man. He must recover from wounds both seen and unseen to find a strength long buried and to save the woman he loves. That's next week on The Joys of Binge Reading, Hallie Bridgman. And just before we go, remember, if you enjoy what you've heard today, just leave a review for the show on your favourite podcast host site so that others will get to hear about us too. We'd love it if you could do that. That's it for today. See you next time and happy reading.
Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone. As a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at Abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Bye.